Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast. Uh, we're really excited to have our guest today, Randy Rivera. He's, he's going to talk to us about uh, what he's working on in the fintech space. So let's get started. Welcome, Randy. Randy and I have had the pleasure of knowing each other for the past several years, previously when he was with BBVA, and now he's uh, the founder of his own company here in Chicago, Keen Advisors. So Randy, would love to hear a little bit more about uh, your current role and what brought you here today. Awesome. So I figured it probably make sense to talk a little bit about how I went from corporate to, to founder, because I think that helps explain the story a little bit more. So I spent 17 years in the financial services industry um, at JP Morgan for 13 and BBVA for four. Built four businesses with my time at those companies, two uh, commercial lending practices and two private banking practices, uh, consistently working with entrepreneurs and founders and, um, and family offices and family businesses. And what I was constantly drawn to uh, over the course of time is the conversation on how to, how to help uh, these folks. And what I realized when I was doing client work uh, and or recruiting work is that what drew me to the work was not necessarily providing the service, but more really kind of helping these folks with their um, pursue their passions. And so um, over the time of my career, I consistently kept coming back like, well, this is really cool that these folks get to own their own business and, 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 and they, they're creating something from scratch or growing something that they're really excited about um, in their respective industries. You know, I, I probably blame my father because he's a, he was an entrepreneur when he came over. He was an immigrant and um, kind of got me into the bug of uh, sometimes just, you got to own something yourself to experience what that what that feels like, that mm-hmm. excitement. And uh, over my course of my career, uh, constantly had clients always asking me to get more involved with their work. And I kept arriving at the conclusion I can't, could no longer do it without within the financial institution. So um, that's kind of what pushed me over the edge in terms of working with uh, founders and, and company and CEOs, which is what I do now. Uh, it's it's the same work that I was doing before, but now I just get to get more involved and, and really be a part of the strategic process, the process of creating strategies to grow the businesses, identify talent and, and grow companies. So the fintech space is interesting. About five years ago, I know when I moved back from New York to Chicago, I realized that Chicago had changed uh, significantly over the course of 2008 to 2013. And uh, there was a lot of movement to support the initiatives of company creation in town. Uh, Originally, when I was in Chicago prior, I had worked with media companies, technology companies, service-based companies, and founders, but there wasn't necessarily a home. Now, when I came back in 2013, there was 1871. There's all these initiatives around supporting the entrepreneur and the founders. It triggered me that while I was in within financial services, that work, I fundamentally believed, and I saw it was after the crisis, obviously, about five years after the crisis, you see how the industry was changing, and it got me involved, got me interested in getting a lot more involved in the work that was going on in the financial service technology sector. So, what I do now, Keen Advisors is my platform through which I identify and work with partners, you know, business clients, founders, uh, helping them grow their businesses 
Fintechs is an organization that I'm on, on, on the board of. And what we what we do through Fintechs is it, Fintechs is a nonprofit trade association focused on helping the founder, the corporate innovator, and the investor interested in supporting companies in the financial service technology space. It's really a great platform where we create we create community. We really focus on bringing relationships to the table and talent and creating content that our membership appreciates so that there's a lot more. We move the needle a lot. We move the needle in terms of getting folks plugged into the right places so that their companies can do well. So it's been a great organization. We have over 170 members. We do everything from hosting events to bringing CEOs together to talk about their problems. We also do work on being an advocate for the space. Right now we're doing some really interesting work in in what I would call legislating innovation. So FinTech has got a really strong voice around ways that we can attract more companies here in the state of Illinois. And the cool thing is that the work that we're doing locally is getting attention nationally. So we're having people from other cities and other ecosystems come back and plug and ask us to help them kind of organize their efforts around the space. So uh, hopefully that's helpful in terms of understanding yeah. the context. Yeah, absolutely. And working with some of these founders and because we talk a lot about innovation, what are some companies or organizations you've seen through your work, people who've really pushed the needle in terms of innovation or you think are the next big thing here in Chicago? So there's two companies that come to mind on the fintech side. Uh, and they are companies that kind of build on the legacy that Illinois and Chicago has and are on the trading front. Uh, Halo Investing is a good example and Spider Rock. So I know for both founders really well. But what they're doing, is, and, and they're both in the investment space, they're leveraging their expertise of the markets, the public markets, and incorporating technology to either bring more cost-efficient solutions to their respective areas. So those are two companies that come to mind. And the reason they're interesting is because the way that they approach their respective spaces is less about, and I think this is in general uh, around the important, really important in fintechs, it's less about breaking everything and starting it from scratch. It's really around applying technology in a way that actually creates more. The benefit is true efficiency as opposed to really changing the way people behave immediately. Uh, in financial services, you can't throw the rule book out the window. And so in both cases, they're, you know, obviously they... Number one, they brought uh, a professional adult to the room, and I think that's important. And, and that's advice that I, I give to a lot of the founders that I interact with is you want to put experts in the space in the room that can really help you organize a company for the long term. So it's always great to have a fresh set of ideas, but people that have been 20, 30 years in their in their spaces add invaluable insight, particularly in the fintech space. So, But then the other thing that they do is they do inject fresh energy, right? So they try to really think about not just a perspective, but constant education around how their tools can help uh, their respective clients. Thanks. Um, Patrick, did you have any questions on those? Yeah, I guess uh, when you look at engaging with these startups in the, in the fintech space, obviously uh, your organization is something that it, it's it's a community of people that are looking to extend that reach further out. Are there other organizations, other places people could be looking to for similar, maybe a little bit different or other places you see outside of the, the fintech uh, community where that kind of environment is provided? Yeah. I think if you're in healthcare, Matter comes up, right? Matter is an initiative in 1871 that's been extremely successful at matching, uh, again, building that ecosystem, matching opportunity with talent. The Illinois Technology Association is also a tremendous resource and one of the things that I do really think that Chicago deserves a lot of credit for is that Chicago in general, people are 
approachable mm-hmm. and amenable to conversations and meetings. The Chicago startup ecosystem is super open and supportive. And I'm always not only pleased, but honestly humbled. You kind of feel a sense of responsibility when you reach out to a CEO for a question or to ask them their insight on something or to their participation. I mean, we just organized a week long of events with people that have a lot of stuff to do and they're always willing to help. So I, I find that these ecosystems in, 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 in Chicago, that Illinois Technology Association, 1871 um, matter, there's just a lot of support to, to, to continue encouraging innovation. So the question is how do we, and this is, and Patrick, you and I talk, spoke about this at length uh, the other day. You know, the question is, so how do we get people to really buy into the value of those networks? How do you get people to invest the time and further resourcing those networks so they can make a bigger impact. And I think that that's where the large corporates really can play a big hand in helping helping these organizations out. And, and they, they stand to benefit. With fintechs, we see it all the time. Large corporates come to us with a lot of their problems, and we are able to match make with uh, people that can help them solve it. That's interesting. I, and you bring that up, and, and I couldn't agree more. I, I think there's – here in Chicago, we have a lot of large corporate organizations, and when – when there's a conversation about whether or not Chicago is a, a tech city, and I'm not going to get into that argument because clearly I'll be biased. Uh, I do think when you when you look at like the economic capability or capacity that Chicago has based upon these larger organizations, it's interesting to think, well, if we mirror or if we, you know, not just mirror, but if we connect the smaller startups with the organizations that actually have existing customer bases and there's a partnership possibility there or an acquisition or something where there's growth for everyone. It, it seems like a, a unique circumstance uh, given, like you brought up, the the cultural differences of the Chicago community as a whole. And I, I, I don't see too much of that. So I, I'm really intrigued about the, the concept of your experience and how you've seen. So Engaging with larger organizations, more established organizations, are there? What do you think would be successful? As like people are out there thinking, okay, how do I connect with those types of organizations, or where do I go to connect with those types of organizations? Is that is that? What are some of the things that you've done to make that successful? I see that question kind of in two parts. One is what can individuals do to be a bridge, and I think just bringing things up, bring. Uh, so it's part that to take that as one issue. I think the other question is, what can the corporates do to be more active? On the latter part, um, and because other large incumbent organizations in town, particularly on the financial service side, have an interest in embracing the innovation that's changed, that's that's happening, and the disruption that's happening in the space. And they all have ex- very explicit and very expressed views that they want to be involved. The challenge is that <clears throat> number one, Chicago is a big hub for activity, but it's only headquarters actually to a handful of national banks in the United States. That poses a challenge in those folks so that, because the decision makers aren't necessarily here. Um, there are regional folks, and I think with what's going on generally with the way organizations are being run, these regional outposts don't necessarily have the executives in town to entrench themselves in, 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 in the organizations. So the, how do they do that? I think that it's incumbent on the employees of those organizations to just get more involved. Uh, we just had a great success with Rory uh, Fox from Northern Trust, and he we met at a Polsky Center event. He was out there. He's part of their lab. They have a lab focused on um, digital strategy and innovation. You know, he rolled up his sleeves and was like, "How can we get more involved? I think we need more of that." Inversely, I think that uh, and the individuals, you got to sit in traffic. So if you really, this is interesting to you, or you really have feel like you have some genuine 
uh, interest in what's going on in the space uh, overall. You want to learn more. You got to go meet the people that are talking about this stuff. And you just, and, and it's coming to events like this. It's, it's, uh, or coming to events like this and it's meeting the other executives that are the founders because they, and trying to help them. People ask me all the time. I meet with probably like three to five founders a week. And people ask me all the time, how do you do that? How are you able to keep up that volume? I don't do anything anymore. I just show up and meet people and then people introduce me to, yeah. to their friends. And I think the founder community is its, its own industry in Chicago and it's, a, it's kind of, it's, it's a very welcoming one. So what I would urge people in all stages of their careers, because what I'm learning is that how people view careers is changing. Just be participate in meetups, go to events. It's okay to be uncomfortable a little bit as you explore different relationships, but the ecosystem is there. And then I think one great success story is our governor. I mean, the reality is that J.B. Pritzker was really involved in A, the launch of 1871, B, his invested in companies. And I know for a fact, because while I haven't spoken to him directly, I know he's talked to some of my friends that are founders. And he speaks to them about their businesses, spoke to them about the business when they were in the stages of raising money or building relationships. So we have examples and I think leaders that care, which is really exciting for Chicago. The question is now, um, what do we do during this unique time? The, the, the unique opportunity, the window's open now, how do we maximize the opportunity? Well, and, and you you bring up a, a very good point about everybody staying invested and setting, putting themselves in uncomfortable positions. I guess with your experience and and mine being an entrepreneur a couple of times and knowing quite a few people of various organizational sizes and structures, what are some of the characteristics, right? So that comfortable with being uncomfortable, is there other characteristics that you see that the, you know, these visionary people, these, these founders, what do they look like? What do they smell like? What do they do? That kind of thing. And this points to the people that I like to work with. So I'm going to be very clear that I made a decision to work for myself, but I did it on, I will work with people that I, that I respect and they respect me. And so that may wipe out a certain segment of the population. I don't like spending time on those folks because that's not necessarily my target market. My target market are people that are committed to doing good business in a way that uh, they can proudly say they're still a good corporate citizen. So um, the characteristics of those folks, uh, I think number one, they're humble. You know, really good leaders that I interact with that motivate me to work with them uh, are, are unbelievably unabashed about their humility and their understanding that they don't know everything. So that's that's the first thing that I would say is, is, is a very striking characteristic. Secondly, um, they are confident enough to surround themselves with people that are smarter than them. And uh, I see this mistake. I saw it a lot in corporate America. And it's one of the things I, hate, I really disliked about being in environments is that when there's so much structure and so much hierarchy, politics takes, takes a nasty role in, in designing who who gets to sit at what seat and you see people not hiring or not promoting or not collaborating because of a fear that's going to overshadow their work. Um, the really good leaders in this town um, are not shy about wanting the best talent around them all the time. I think that they've got hustle and grit. And I think those things are just, you get the hunch real quick if somebody's going to figure out a way to, to, to win, mm -hmm. but they're also not scared of losing. And that's something that's been hard for me as a founder. Because, you know, I've worked in corporations and had a safety net for my entire career. But you've got to just know that it's okay to lose sometimes, you know, and you, 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 you as long as you learn mm -hmm. and you try not to repeat the mistakes that led you there, you really take it as a, as a reflective moment. It's, it's a huge tool because it kind of wipes out the uncertainty of, of loss. You know, you're going to lose. And if once that, what I see with leaders, that, that's, that inspires me and I, it's the kind of people I like to work with is, no, it's okay. We're going to mess this up. 
but if we're going to mess it up together and we're going to find a way to, to fix it together. So those are characteristics that stand out uh, to me. I also, I'm a big believer in networks. So personally, I think that when I see founders that understand that it's, they don't need to know everybody, but they identify the right networks. It's a lot easier, I think, to create scale um, in terms of the impact that you can make. Nice. Have you ever uh, read the book uh, from Patrick Lencioni, The Advantage? No. Okay. So he talks about the, you know, we talk about core values and hiring for the right things and finding the right people. And uh, I think we all recognize that core values is too often something just written on a wall, not something that's lived, breathed, tangible, touchable, smellable in many organizations, uh, even smaller, larger. Um, one of the things that Patrick Lencioni talks about, and I think it, it it's in complete agreement with what you just said along the lines of the perfect candidate you're looking for is humble, hungry, and smart. And you mentioned adults before in the organization, and I think that that is the magic mix right there where you've got adults that are self-independent, can do things on their own. At the same point in time, their motivations are, uh, I want to be part of a team. I'm hungry. I want to grow. At the same point in time, I'm smart enough to to learn. And I also think that, uh, did you ever read the book uh, Mindset by Professor Dwork out of, uh, I think it's USC? I have not. Uh, the growth mindset of uh, so the name of the book's mindset, but it it really talks about that concept between learning and failing, and do you view mistakes and setbacks as opportunities for improvement, or do you see it as a judgment of your perfect, beautiful self? You know, having left the corporate world twenty years ago, uh, it, it's it's hard for me to recognize some of those things. But even like organizations that I started that got to about. 40, 50 people, the politics is, is inevitable, right? Like you're, you're going to have some politics, right? People vying for positions, people vying for having their say, right? And you, you put enough people in a room and it, it's going to happen. So I guess, you know, all that being said is like, how critical is it that like your founding team, that first five from your experience, do you, do you think is is going to make or break? Do you do you think it's critical, absolutely must have, something you can recover from? What are your thoughts? Um, so my thoughts on this are, I have a, a few. I, first of all, the first five, I mean, you're not going to, it is rare that the first five is the right five. If it, if it still is and there's never been any challenge and you've got a much bigger problem, you should be looking around the corner because something's going to smack you because it's very rare. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of relationship, business relationships over the years evolve and you just have to kind of plan for that to, to be the case. But it is critical. I think that founders that don't have enough counterbalances in terms of opinions and thoughts and pushback in their life find themselves very alone as CEOs. That's, that's one of the things that I see happens very often in partnerships and I've, I've seen in business. When I, would, when, I was, when I was learning how to be a banker and I was first responsible for lending money, I always asked, who are the owners of the business? And I would always want to see them interacting with each other. And it became clear to me that the teams, the, the, the right mix is that everybody has a different element and they just do what they do really well. And they have opinions, but they focus on what they do. So if somebody's really good at the operational aspect of it, the technological aspect of it, 
they own that. And then they come together and they have honest conversations. But the critical thing is sizing people up for what are they bringing to the table and making sure people know that that's their role. Clarity on what those roles and what problems are there to solve is going to be really critical. So the first five is really critical to an organization. But in my opinion, what I see with founders, what I see mistakes is either they want five people to get along or are too similar. Well, that's called a social club and it's not necessarily a business. Or uh, again, there's always a, there's a gap. And I think in business, there's just very basic things. You need the right legal team. You need the right uh, finance partners. You need the right marketing and business development team. And if you don't have those core elements in, the, in that first five, I think you're going to be in for a rough go. And it's already challenging enough building a business. And without if you're trying to build a business without the right tools, it's just not going to stand. Yeah, no, the the accountability question is is huge, right? Clarity of like who's responsible for what. There's I think that you can have some messes where it's like uh, you're divvying up the finance function. Like AR is doing, somebody's doing AR who's not doing AP, but that person does client engagement as well and does recruiting. But as you're growing, clearly uh, getting some clarity and separation of responsibilities just from a movement standpoint with the lean manufacturing waste removal process of like, okay, so three people don't need to know how to do this one thing, right? I saw a presentation the other day about as organizations are growing, when you're when you're that zero to five million, you're trying to stay wide because revenue is really what you're looking for, right? You're open to potentially, at least this is one of the things that I, I've thought of and I, I've kind of done as I grow businesses, staying wide at the beginning and being open to, you know, I call the save by the bell moments where it's like just lightning in a bottle. Nobody knows why that show is so popular. It doesn't make any sense, but you could never replicate it. And so being open to, you know, that saved by the bell opportunity and at the same point in time, getting to 5 million. And then once you get to 5 million, start thinking about getting narrow on what is that thing that's going to carry you to 20 million. And then once you get to 20, 20, 30, somewhere around there, start getting wide again from an expansion standpoint. Are, are there other things like, what do you, I guess, first, what do you think of that from your experience? Because I hear a lot of people talk about like, oh, you got to stay to your niche. You got to stay to your niche. And I, I know that's what they write in books. But I don't know, is your experience along that lines where it's like stick stick with your niche or is it too wide and then get narrow? What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are, first and foremost, you have to have, you have to be committed to a solution. You got to solve a problem, right? So what's that, what's that business? And again, my experience is mostly financial service technology companies and service businesses, but you really have to understand what you do well. Sometimes that changes and that's hard to digest, uh, especially if you're creating a solution that you think is going to be <clears throat> is going to change how people interact. I mean, financial services, everything's related to money. Uh, and you're, you're in some in some part of the process trying to facilitate, make that consumption of a, a financial service easier. So I think that in short, it is important to stick to what is the problem you're trying to solve, especially early on. Who you're trying to solve it for, that can change. I think that's where you can be nimble and it benefits you to be wide, to your point, um, because the unintended consequences of designing a really nice product or a solution is that it may have more than one purpose. And if, if that purpose is broader and you've got a different audience, you got to find a way to capitalize on, on the audience you have to get revenue. But then I think to your point, as you continue to grow, as a company grows, what ultimately ends up happening is you got to get really good at picking your lane because you're going to compete on a broader scale. And to, the interesting that that five million dollar revenue number is an interesting number. It's also the number right where you're starting to hire 
the CMO of, the CFO from. And I, what I believe is that when I say adults, and, and there's nothing to do with age. Like for me, it's more an analogy around experience level. Um, early on, you know, you find this all the time. Founders are the CEO, the chief sales officer, the chief marketing officer, the chief janitor, all the things. But at one point, when the company gets to a certain size, you really need to trust professionals in their expert areas. And I think that's really tough because, you know, a good friend of mine calls her business her baby, right? And, you know, her, the the way she treats it, it's like it's hers. And at one point, that business is going to grow up and it's not going to be hers anymore. And I've got three kids and a daughter that's 16. So if anybody understands that, like, at one point they leave, it's me. It's one of the things that's ever present. Human analogies to businesses, you know, some people say it's cliche. But one point as a founder, you have to realize that if you're doing your job, this business is going to exist once you're gone. And that's really hard. I think that's why you need, in my opinion, humility to be a really good leader, Uh, because if you get through that stage and you still try to hold on or or baby the adult, you're going to have much, much bigger consequences. And so I think that the point is these businesses do go in stages. Uh, Focusing early is important and making sure you crush whatever product solution you're, you're, you're delivering. You do that really well. You do it in a way you can repeat. The, the the outcome is predictable because of your activities, how you design it. At one point, you're going to have to revisit and make that product better and make it stand out even more more so. I was in a session the other day, you know, kind of design in a design session around a solution for uh, a technology company. For actually, the company is a financial service company. We're, we're designing a technology just to solve a problem. And my question to the partners who build the software is, you know, how much ongoing expenses is this going to take to sustain the technology in a roundabout way? But it ended in the same place. You got to expect that you're continuously going to have to reinvest and reinvest mm-hmm. the technology. And that's the goes, in my opinion, the same thing for business design. If you've got a business plan, there's no static business plan that lasts forever. You know, Apple is now selling music before it was computers and eventually evolved into phones. And now it's music and news. So all and now they have credit cards. It's, it's, these businesses are constantly reinventing themselves. And the pace of it's so much faster today than it was before that, in my opinion, it's even more critical that you have you take those moments to pause when you have certain milestones, not just to celebrate, but also to reflect. You know, I'm a big believer in founders finding time to collect themselves and self-care and self and, and, and take time to relax and reflect. Mm-hmm. If you call, if you keep crossing thresholds, you're going to burn out. And, and if you burn out and you're the, you're not getting the right support from your team or getting bring the right people into the loop, the business is not going to make it. Well, I can tell you my wife will probably have the same statement about uh, got to relax. But some of us have a trouble with turning it off, right? Even on the weekends, it's always on. Brain's always processing. And so even when you're not at work sometimes, unfortunately, I, I, you know, I think uh, a lot of founders, a lot of, of visionaries have a, people ask me what my hobby is. Uh, it's running my business. And so I do agree with you that it's important to find peace and spend time. If you're going to be the visionary, spend time really thinking about the future. And I think that's relaxing for visionaries. I think when you, you know, it's not so much go jet skiing and hang out and go do these things that other people want to do that I don't want to do. Like, I hate golf. Everyone's like, oh, take up golf. I'm like, I hate golf. Tell me about a time you leave the golf course where you felt happy, right? Like I've never once, right? I lost a lot of money and I stink at golf. And then what do you say to yourself? Oh, I should really spend more time golfing. It seems backwards. So uh, I, <laughs> hopefully everybody understands what I mean when it's like uh, spending time, like getting clarity of like what you want out of your business is I think is really important, right? Like what is that end game? Where do you want to be? What does it look like? Because I do think like a lot of times you get stuck in the the rut of like just doing 
And I, I think that's an important image. The the other thing that uh, you brought up was uh, the adults, right? And like, I don't want to harp on it, uh, but I do think it, it's it's an important clarity statement of like what is what does that mean to be an adult? And and you made it very clear what what your definition is, and I think that's great. And I I I, I my definition is it's not an age thing; it, it's a maturity thing, right? I know plenty of I've got friends; they're forty five year old children, right? I love hanging out with them at times. Uh, would I want to build a business with them? Absolutely not. Are they good friends from college and guys that I like hanging out with? Absolutely. But I think there's that concept of like maturity, responsibility, accountability. Uh, I think that's how I I define an adult. I, just to pivot a little bit, I know we talked about uh, the fintech space before, and I know you you had some really great ideas around, you know, what are some of the consequences around that fintech space as as it's growing and maturing and becoming ever more present in our lives. What are you seeing? What is it? What is your perspective of how fintech is going to affect everyone we know in the coming years? So I think the, the, the expectations are interesting, actually. First and foremost, I would, I, I, there was a study that I, I read in preparation for a, a recent conversation that I was a part of, and it was about ATMs. And banks, everybody was scared that the ATM was going to cost all these jobs. And um, because the people are counting the money, like what 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 are they going to do now? This person that whose sole job from nine to five is just collect money, count it, and reconcile it has no function because this machine is going to replace it. Turns out, actually, had the reverse effect. You found they found not only did branch productivity increase, end up creating more jobs because what happened is you take these, you took a mindless task, counting money that's important, but that a machine can do, and you free people up to do more thought-provoking behavior. They're able to ask marketing questions, probing questions, solve problems. Customer satisfaction goes up. I think that I, I use that to kind of lay, lay the groundwork for what, where I think, why I think fintech is important. I believe technology, when used correctly, can significantly improve and add value to um, any business process. And so the question is, with financial services, why does it make sense? Or kind of what's, what's, why, should we, why should we care? First and foremost, I think we should care from a legislative perspective because technology has the ability to democratize access to financial services. And I fundamentally believe that if we have we were doing our, our country and the world economy a disservice by not leveraging technology as a resource for people that historically have not played in the financial service space. So that's my my the, the first reason. I think people should be very vocal about it and should, people should be aware this is a policy issue they need to be speaking about because – it's helpful to motivate and spark energy and, and momentum in parts of the economy that we have not tapped. Secondly, because we all need the help. And one of the things that I, I'm very vocal about is, you know, we I don't think we talk enough about money. I, I think that we it's an uncomfortable topic for, for many people. It's kind of taboo. But the reality is if we don't educate ourselves, our children, our friends, and I don't have honest conversations about the impact of what's going on in terms of debt in the United States, people are going to make poorer choices. And so, I, I, again, I see that as coming down the pike, especially if the economy continues to turn and, and grow and interest rates go up again. Um, there are a lot of things that are going to change, right? People's minimum payments on things are just going to go up. Um, student debt is going to cost more. House, buying a house is going to be more difficult. <clears throat> not speaking about it or, or you know, not, not, not addressing the issue. 
puts you at a tremendous disadvantage, both in terms of economically, but as a society, if we're not talking about it, I think it's it's a, a bigger issue. And lastly, I think because it can, money has been known to cause a lot of stress in people's lives. And the more we use these technologies to to make better decisions, the happier we're going to be. You know, I think that 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 is why fintech in my is something we should be celebrating and encouraging the conversation of right the reason that banks appreciate the technology is because it makes their clients lives easier which makes them happier clients and across the spaces whether it be in borrow through through borrowing you know alternative investment solutions by way of robo advisors uh, budgeting tools. There's just so many things that we can do that can de- declutter our lives and allow us to spend mm-hmm. time on things that we care about more. You know, that bodes for a really strong case. And that is what the Fed, that's what FinTech founders are seeing. That's what they're doing now. They're, they're, their case is usually they're solving a pain point for a client. And, you know, because of the nature of the industry, anytime that there's a design of a solution in the financial services space, it's so overthought because it can't be wrong. Again, because of the regulated environment of financial services, these founders are really just trying to address the problems in a way that it fits within the rule book. And so large banks and large incumbent players in the financial services space embrace that, want to participate in that dialogue. The challenges is that you have a consumer that's changing, right? When the millennial generation is, is just consumes services differently um, in a much different way than the prior generations, is much more aware of how they're consuming and what they're consuming. And so it, it also prompts the need to start thinking about technology in a way you can, how do you tackle this changing behavior? Because otherwise the old, the old models just don't necessarily work with uh, the changing buying, the, the, the dynamics that are changing in terms of buying behavior amongst consumers. Yeah, I think that's really interesting stuff when it comes to education, availability, access, right? Empowering. I was reading, a, a just started this book, Anti-Fragile. It's, it's about creating not resilient or or uh, resistant or you know those types of organizations and cultures, but really creating something that adapts well to setbacks and and how does it how does challenge that doesn't cause failure utter you know complete catastrophic failure how do you create a, a solution that actually creates a better outcome things get healthier you know and and I think about anything that that's organic something that uh, is evolutionary and I think. As consumers, being more aware is something of value that these folks that, you know, historically have not had access to that type of information or that type of service, uh, it's going to be transformative. I think that's pretty amazing stuff. Uh, Howard Tolman uh, had a really interesting article. For those who don't know who Howard Tolman is, he was uh, the head of 1871 for a good long time. Uh, But he had a a really interesting article in Inc. the other day about – this next generation of entrepreneurs who are, he's saying, remarkably out of touch and not sure, doesn't know what it takes to run and start a business. I find it very interesting that the the head of 1871 or the former head of 1871 is having this kind of conversation on Inc. And I, I know you have a, a very interesting take on the state of entrepreneurship and foundership here in, in Chicago. Is that is that gel with your experience when you're talking to some of these younger entrepreneurs and one other piece I'd throw in there, I think historically entrepreneurs' average age was somewhere in the mid-40s, and that has significantly reduced in, in the most recent years with all of the young startups and people coming out of high school and college with ideas and and the entry to entrepreneurship being lower than ever. I guess uh, going back to that first question is, is Howard's experience gel with, with what you're seeing, or was he just writing a very interesting article? 
so I, I briefly skimmed the headlines of that article. I didn't get a chance to read it. So I don't can't tell you that I completely have an appreciation for what his message was because I didn't get a chance to read the article. What I would say is a couple of things. You know, Again, because of technology, starting a company is just easier now. Well, you can go online. We can do it probably much shorter time than they would to do this podcast. Um, so – so that's a fact. It's just easier to start businesses now. There's also, it's cool. It's the hip thing. And it's funny because it draws a certain kind of attention. I did read an article that another friend of mine published about how like kind of interesting it becomes. Being an entrepreneur is like the sexy thing now. And how that's got a lot of potential pitfalls if you let it draw you in. It is a flame and you know you can get burned pretty quickly. If you let the luxuries of working remotely, working for yourself and not worrying about being part of the man, it's just not for everybody. So I think that I would say, I don't know if that the entrepreneurs now aren't in touch with themselves. I, I, I don't, again, I, I wouldn't say it that way. I would say that we have more entrepreneurs, so we have different personalities we have to get to know. And that is, um, there's going to be consequences to that. People are going to get burned. So I think that all comes in cycles, right? I think uh, all the large corporate companies are trying to find a way to, to whether it be reposition their stories so they can attract talent. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some people start realizing that working for the man actually or working for a big company is actually not a bad thing because I think companies are starting to realize they need to create more attractive work environments. But the founder grind is hard. And the reality is that not most people are not equipped to last it. And I think we just have a lot more examples today of people that can't make it. And with social media, you know, it's also public, right? So like I could put on, you know, I have a Twitter account for, for my company. Um, what, what happens when my company fails? Oh my God, I can't have that happen. So I might keep it up for a while. You, just, you start seeing these, the reality TVization of society and like what we're doing right now, it makes the entrepreneur kind of the, the protagonist of the story. I kind of think that some of that is a lot for show and not necessarily real. I think that you're going to see ultimately what's happened over time. When 92% of businesses are going to fail within the first two to three years of being organized, the way the society is designed today, some of those failures are going to be a lot more public. I'm hoping that people that are looking to pursue that as a career track are learning from the mistakes of those that didn't make it as well and not judging them because the reality is that entrepreneurship is not for everyone. And the point that I think you're calling attention to is that people are now um, attacking that individual as as a group, and it's again, it's because it's more visible now that it's easier to be. It's it's sexy to be an entrepreneur in air quotes, but the reality is, are you add value? Is your company adding value to somebody else? Are you delivering a service? And if it, that fact will stand the test of time, if you're not doing that on a consistent basis over time, then your company will not generate revenue. And it will not be profitable. It's just it's if and without revenue, you can't have profit. So, you know, I think in Chicago, this has been very this has also been very transparent. I mean, 1871 gives us a physical place where you can go and almost in a fishbowl, go look at the entrepreneurs working like you go into the zoo. I, I, I personally think that that's dangerous if you think that that's, that's what entrepreneurship is because it is not. I mean, I think entrepreneurship is staying up till two, three in the morning sometimes, getting what you need done for the client. It's thinking about your client, thinking about how you can add value. It's worrying about solving the problems that, that the solving the same problem in a different way 24 months from now. Um, it's just, it's, it is a different, it, it's, it's an attitude and a, and, and a way of thinking. The problem is it's become a lifestyle. That's a little dangerous for, in my opinion, listen, I have a 16 year old daughter who's into entrepreneurship now 
And I'm not going to be one to stymie her interest in being a creative person and, and forging her way through life. But I'm also going to pragmatically tell her an entrepreneur is going to go to college and, you know, you got to get your degree. You got to get some skills. It's it's but that that's something we have to deal with as, as, as a business society is uh, understanding that that's changed. That's not the same as it was 15 years ago. You know, Randy, there's a term I use, and I think as a guy that's built three businesses, I can say declaratively what you're touching on comes down to one word, and it's love. I don't think anybody's ever going to accuse me of being, you know, the soft, squishy kind of person, but I'm going to tell you it's love. If you don't love who you're servicing, if you don't love the people you work with, if you don't pour it all in at that level, I don't think it works because it is it is just like parenting. You love your kids. You want them to grow. You want them to, to be successful. And if you don't have that level of commitment, right, this is not an easy path to take. It's it's going to hurt. The only way you get through that kind of pain is you, you've got to have a bigger purpose and you've got to love it. You've got to say, like, this is it. This is all I do because there's always a way to go back. There's always a safer less frictionful option, right? You can go back to a good job, right? Unemployment's at what, 3%? For IT industry, it's like one, zero, literally, you know? Probably not literally, but I'll just say it. But I, I do think it's love. Is that something you've seen where it's like these people you mentioned being up till two in the morning, you're sacrificing, you're, you know, the idea that you're going to get something, get back in equal amounts what you've given in that first two, three, four years is just not reality, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I. So it is love. You know, a, a couple of things I would say. Number one, in regards to, you know, if you don't have that commitment, it's quickly tested. So again, I, I think that that's that's a redundant point we we touched on and we talked about it. But the piece that's uh, that's interesting to me is entrepreneurs have found. I mean, so let's take Braintree for example, which is an organization we know well in town. Braintree is a very well-known uh, exit in Chicago. Um, and this is talk, talk a little bit about the ecosystem here and kind of what, what my thoughts are about, about in general. Uh, the reality is Braintree, PayPal, these companies were almost all dead. Like if you read the history of how these companies were founded from a funding perspective, they, they, they were moments of near death. There's a company called Simple that BBBA bought, and I saw Matt Harris speaking about this, and this is it was it plays right to this point. Simple did this huge round. Matt Harris is a very well known partner at Bain Capital. Um, very, he was he was into fintech before it was even a thing. People didn't even understand it. He, it was fintech, but nobody the term hadn't come out yet. Anyway, um, really interesting story about the founders. They did a round. And they were getting ready for their first board meeting and they were so excited because they got a banking license and they, a banking partner lined up and they were going to announce that they were ready to open up accounts. <clears throat> so just so, so for those who don't know, Simple is a millennial-focused marketing uh, financial institution. And what they did was the founders really thought that being nickel and dime sucked. So they wanted to create a new banking product for millennials that was really transparent and kept things simple. So they're jazzed. They finally got a banking partner. They got a vision. They got the design of how to get how to get the customers. They got a, a strategy of how, to, how they're going to open accounts. But they need a banking partner. Long story short, before the first board meeting, after they close their round, they're preparing documents. The night before, the CEO gets a call from the partner bank that he thought he was lined up, and they were like, "No, no go." So the first board meeting, this founder has to go tell his board of directors, revenue slated for first quarter of this year, not happening. We have to now start from scratch because we can't, this didn't work out. If you don't love life, <laughs> if you don't love your job at that point, like you're gonna you're gonna clonk out. And I think that's the the, the same thing with these companies like Raintree and PayPal. These companies they they require a lot of capital to get designed and created. 
but it takes real commitment to the cause to run these companies. And I think that that's why for me, the, I'm so true to like, I only work with people that are really passionate about their businesses and committed to it, that I feel it, that it, like it almost burns on me because otherwise what you're going to realize is that they're not going to pass the test because those, those are the, those, the funding challenges, operational challenges, legal challenges, divorces that happen within businesses, within partners. It, it's part of the game. It's part of the grind. And if you don't have that that commitment to and that love for the organ for the cause, you're not going to make it. So I, that's that's kind of my feeling. It is love, um, but almost unending passion. It is you know I, I think love is almost too. I am soft. I am a, a feelings and a squishy kind of person, but I, I don't think love does it justice because it's not. It's, it sounds like it's in your DNA. It's in your DNA. I believe so. I mean, I think that's and that's what I look for. That's what I, got, I kind of try to pull from for folks when I get to know them. Those are the people I like to work with. Well. Um, you know, uh, Shelly, I feel like I've dominated the questions. Uh, what were your thoughts? Um, I'm just curious because you've worked with so many founders and startups. You know, what is maybe the best lesson you've ever learned or maybe a lesson that one of your clients has learned the hard way? And, and how did they grow as a result? Uh, one of the lessons that I learned recently in my business is that the tigers can't change their stripes. So at the end of the day, you know, whether it's a picking out whether or not to work with a client, deciding whether or not you're going to invest time in a partnership, whether it's, you know, taking a bet on somebody and doing something, giving for the sake of because you trust that it's going to come back or that it's worth it regardless, even if it doesn't. You got to do that for the people that you, you got to trust your hunches when you're interacting with people and they do not because they're not going to change. They're going to be who they are. And we always try as humans to de-risk mm-hmm. as much as possible. But sometimes the easiest way to do that is to trust your gut. And especially around people, if somebody's cutting corners to get something done, they're going to do that in their business, mm-hmm. right? And that's not going to change. If somebody is, uh, you know, is is not transparent, or it's opaque with information, they're not going to overnight become very transparent, right? So I think that's important. And I think culturally, you know, my family's from the Dominican Republic. We're a very welcoming people. I'm a very, uh, you know, I've been described as very giving, uh, you know, of my time and generous. I was constantly disappointed with people when they weren't back. And now, like, as I've gone through the years and worked with different types of people, I realized that person is just acting the way they're going to act. They're self-centered and they don't put their equation. If I win, I'm great. Then that's not going to change much at all. So I think what I, the one lesson I learned. So, and I think you touch on an important issue on, and, you know, being open to exposing yourself to being hurt, right? I know we talk about empathy and, and those things as well. And we being vulnerable is, is the new leadership mantra. And and I, I totally believe it. I agree with it. I think it's always been there. Movies just made it another way. But is there, a, you know, my experience is when you start that selflessness, that giving, right? That really, really, not just like, oh, I kind of give, but I, I kind of want to get back. Like when you've finally given over to that whole concept of, no, I'm just going to give. I think there's a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, they're worried about being suckered, right? They're worried about being taken advantage of. Is that is that real or is that perceived from your perspective? Um, so it, it, it's real. It's real that people would take advantage, that they seize on this vulnerability? Yes, absolutely. And listen, being a person of color in this country, I can tell you that. I know that to be the fact. Like there's just – there's – People that will take advantage of inequity or 
situations and circumstances all the time. That's why I'm pretty passionate about transparency and education because I want people to understand the consequences of different behaviors. But it's very real. The way you protect yourself, you align yourself with people and you surround yourself with people that have the similar values than you. It can help you spot it, right? And then it, it's once you once you understand what the defense is, at least you can run the best play to try to counter that mm-hmm. that defense, right? So, but you got to be able to spot it. And the only way to do it, sometimes you have blind spots. I've had blind spots, you know, with clients or people that I've worked with in the past and I've done things for them. And, and then I realized, crap, I got really taken advantage mm-hmm. of in the situation, bosses that I've worked for that have not told my story or inversely people that have that have worked for me whose story hasn't been told because it serves somebody's agenda. And so I think that it is a real thing. And the only counter to it, you know, cure to it is to surround yourself with people that can help you call it out when you when you may not be when you may be too clouded, too close to the situation to do it yourself. And um, for me, I'm blessed with opportunity of working with amazing people. And I think that the, the I'm a fundamental believer that if you surround yourself with the right people, they're not going to let you get hurt. And I don't, because I don't let my friends get hurt, right? And if somebody says something about Shelly to me, I'm going to go tell Shelly, even if it's hard, right? Because that's that's what I believe in. And I think that if you don't have those friends like that, then yeah, you're especially in entrepreneurship and in financial services, which is a business based on trust, it's even more so. You can't have, you can't be in a place where you can't identify those things and protect yourself on a constant Mm -hmm. basis. But I mean, I have... The full reason to walk around like a skeptic, but I don't because I believe ultimately that, that, that optimism is what will help yeah. me get through that. That to, well, it's what's going to drive my success. Yeah, I read an article a couple of years ago and it, it talked about there's three types of people: there's givers, takers, and matchers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, would you agree with that? That's yeah. Uh, and I'm reading a book called Give and Take right now, and uh-huh. I, I agree. And I'm a giver. Uh, I think people know that about me. And then I have friends that remind me that it's right to take sometimes and to ask. But you got to have that balance, right? I think and knowing who you're, that self-awareness is also really important. And Shelly, I, I think the matching thing is what you're, you're driving at is like uh, you should take, but you should give. And that's that's what differentiates people who are able to give and get value, right? It's it's the people who are, I don't want to call hoodwinked, but not not aware that they're being taken advantage of. They give best of intentions, uh, but unfortunately, that effort, that intention isn't reciprocated. So it's, it is, it is interesting. And having been in the entrepreneurial space here in Chicago, I can say that like more times than not, I put the number somewhere around like one out of ten people are actually going to do something to try and take advantage of you. Uh, this town just, you know, you're not going to get around very well with a bad reputation. It, it's a big town that's very well connected. And so I think it, it's really career limiting once you self-identify as the bad operator. You know, Shelly knows a ton of people. And when I need to know information, I need to know whether or not somebody's a good person. Who do they work with? You know, all of us have plenty of connections that we can reach out to to verify that this person is whether they're competent or not is one thing you know there's a concept of trust three three phases of trust one i i believe you want to do the right thing two you have the actual capacity capability to do the right thing and then three having experience doing the right thing and that's that's actually uh stephen covey's son's book uh, the speed of trust so just make sure I don't take credit for other people's really great ideas, but that's really what it comes down to is like, one, I, I, first of all, let's just find out, do they have a history of doing the right things, whether or not they're, they're capable, whether or not they intended to, right? The, the real proof is in that pudding. And so I think as the world's becoming more and more connected, like you mentioned, right, through social media, through LinkedIn, through all of these various tools that gives us hyper connectivity to uh, everybody else's past performance, I, I don't know, I... I 
not exactly always an optimist, but I think this optimist view of the quality of who you are is going to be a bigger business advantage now more than ever. You're not going to be able to hide from your past bad behaviors. Right. One more thing that I wanted to bring up, Randy, you mentioned earlier that, you know, anyone can open a business, uh, they can be out there on social media and otherwise, and they feel compelled to maybe try and look like they're very successful. It makes me sad to think that way because there's probably so many entrepreneurs out there who feel that they have to keep up but aren't opening themselves up to learning and then also aren't sharing those mistakes and those failures with others that they can then learn from. So I'm curious, is this maybe a new epidemic because of, you know, the reality TV of the world and and everything and that's been going on for many years. But do you see that as an issue with up and coming emerging leaders who feel I think, the need to I be think successful? I see it more with kids, man. I think honestly, I, I think that like that's so I, I think it's a potential issue if we don't address it, if we don't create tools. But on the inverse, there's also so much attention being given, so many resources being given to you know, founders and there's networks now. I mean, I think that I have a team of people that I, I can reach out to with questions or advice, mentorship. And the more we continue to spread that message, the, the easier it is going to be for people not to have those, you know, those moments of loneliness. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I forgot where I read it, but it, it was something about mental health and being a founder. And there's a lot of issues that are starting to come up where founders are just more susceptible to it because they do spend so much time alone or mm-hmm. questioning, wondering how they're doing. And so it's another reason why it's important to, to be open and transparent about going through your struggles. Yeah. And, and I'm not, you know, you're right. There, there is a downside of all this public visibility into people's activities, but there's also, in my opinion, the opportunity, the tools are there and the opportunities there to support mm-hmm. those folks that may, you know, they need somebody to talk to. And I think that that's the onus on the ecosystem to, to create it and, continue building that. So. Nice. Awesome. Well, I think this has been a really awesome and incredible conversation. And, and Randy, I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate you taking time to, to join us and sit down and share your experiences. I know you and Shelly have known each other for a while and it, it's, we could probably talk for another three hours. I've got a lot of questions around some of your other, uh, you, you are a very giving and generous person based upon all of your the activities and groups that you you are of service to, and it, it's an impressive background. But uh, trying to keep things down to uh, a reasonable amount of time, uh, maybe we'll have you back again. We can have like an update on how things are going and and how your organization is growing. So, on behalf of Shelly and I, I really want to say thank you for taking the time. Yes, thank you, Randy. Well, thanks for having me. This has been a fun talk and um, really really uh, interesting dialogue. So yeah. appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We've got a lot of other episodes coming up this summer, so please stay tuned. All right. Take care. I also wanted to thank our listeners for spending the time to join us. I really appreciate everybody uh, listening. And you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.